if you'll flip over to First Peter um, chapter one, that's where we're going to be, begin this uh, sermon series, um, and it will be a five-part series, and just have the opportunity to guide you through parts of it. I'm, uh, you know, going to lead you exegetically, but at the same time, I won't be able to cover all the ground of of First Peter, but. I did, you know, for some time the Lord's been dealing with me with this book of the Bible, this letter, and I probably had it on my heart for a year now or so, and it's like, well, if I ever get the chance to preach, I'll, I'm going to preach this, and um, so here I am, and, and the Lord works in those kind of ways, so he already provides things. So, um, you know, as a part of this new series, I just want you to understand that First Peter comes at, at the right time for many of us um, in our congregation, at the right time for many of us who are online or uh, in the midst of this crowd who have suffered from, you know, all kind of things. Uh, it could be issues related to your health, uh, maybe people that you've lost in your life, um, broken relationships. Um, a lot of us have that pain that's caused by just issues that have come about by broken relationships and economic struggles, especially over the past year. Um, persecution, um, I expect more of that to come as we become a, a more marginalized portion of society, um, and we face that. And, and I hope you understand that is to come. Uh, my expectation is that's the way uh, our nation is headed. But I will say this, that the church always flourishes in those moments um, so and then so on so there, there's so many hardships that we face so many trials so much suffering that we deal with so while this letter though is based on the suffering of the believers there in Asia Minor which we know as modern day Turkey what we know about that is the fact that while it's written to them it also applies to us in our life today that we can look at it as the believers did back then, as they were suffering and dealing with different trials, different issues in their own personal life, it also applies to us as well. And, and let me share this with you. If you haven't experienced suffering in your life at this point, or maybe it's been a, a, quite a while since you have, it will come. And in the moments that it comes, this is what I hope, that while the, the backbone of this letter is suffering, at the forefront of the letter is joy and hope in Christ, uh, in our eternal inheritance, in our joy. Uh, the fact that we can look at Jesus is our ultimate uh, treasure. Um, so I hope that as you go through life and you experience all kinds of difficulties of suffering, trials, and, and whatever, and however that plays out, is that you're able to always remember, remember that the person of Christ is what we have to look forward to. And not this life. It is fleeting. It passes quickly. So may our hopes and uh, not rest in this life. Um, may the things that we uh, come into contact with in this life and we deal with, that you understand that those moments are minute compared to eternity and the hope that we have in Jesus. So if you'll stand with me, I want to read First Peter uh, 1 through 12 as we honor the Lord's word. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the rested genuineness of your faith, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with him that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. I may sit down. Thank you. So as we notice that as Peter's writing here, he uses this statement right in verse 2. Sanctification of the Spirit. What, what does this mean? Like, what does sanctification of the Spirit mean? It, it helps us to understand, first of all, that one, God, as, as, as a people, God has set us apart. As believers, He has made a difference in your life, and he has, he has set you apart as a new creature in Christ. So what I want to bring about here is this idea that, you know, God doesn't leave you where you're at, and He hasn't brought you to where you are, you need to be. It is a progressive sanctification, meaning that he is constantly at work in our lives. He's constantly working us towards uh, his image and his likeness of being like him. And I think so often we think right out the gate, as soon as we are justified, which is a one-time event, God changes us by faith. Sanctification doesn't work that way. Sometimes we feel like it's two steps forward and one step back. Um, it is a process by which we go through. Um, and that is what we see here is as Peter starts out his letter, he is reminding the church that you are a work in progress. So let me encourage you today as you sit here that, church, you are a, a work in progress. Um, you are not the final product of God's justification of his in work in you but he is working in and through you. And he is ultimately glorifying himself. Every time that you take those two steps forward, it glorifies the Lord because you are becoming more and more like him in his image, in his way. So, you know, I hope you dwell on that this week. You think on that, that you understand that God's not done with you yet. He is using you. He is at work in your life, and he is progressively changing you. So as he greets the church here in his opening words, he reminds them that God, through his spirit, is constantly at work in their life. 
So as he's writing this letter to them, he's also reminding us that God has not forgotten us, that he will never leave or forsake us, but he is always working in the midst of our life. The idea of rejoicing is a theme throughout the pages of the New Testament. If we read the, the multiple letters, we see that thematically written. And what we, I do know is this, that no other group of people have that same hope. There's no one. Uh, there, there's no one who is able to look at life and at the end of life come to the realization through their suffering in this life and in this world and at the end of life have the same perspective, the same worldview that we have. We have something to rejoice in. Uh, we have an eternal inheritance found in the work and person of Jesus Christ. There is no other group, there's no other religious system, there's no other belief system, no other cult, no, no other anything, philosophy that has the same view on life that we have. Theirs is often bleak compared to ours, but we have much to rejoice in. So no matter the circumstances of your life today, no matter where you're at, you find yourself in the future, I hope you're always able to reflect back on this truth that Jesus has went before you and he sits on his throne currently, and he will rule forever. As we've been singing about this morning, that's the Jesus we serve. That's the hope that we have in our life. So there's a, there's a few things I want to point out that we should rejoice in based on the passages that we've read today. So the first thing is we rejoice in the mercy of God. We have to start there. That we rejoice as a church and as a people, we rejoice first and foremost in the mercy of God. We see Peter giving praise and honor to the Lord. Right there in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should always be our first point of reference. When we think of the gospel, we should always praise the Lord for what he has already done and already accomplished. He is the active agent in salvation. He is the one at work in our life, and it is through his mercy that he pours out his love and his grace to us. It's a great question. Why does he set his affection on us? Because he is merciful by giving us a new birth. We see it in Ephesians 1, that in love he adopted us into his family. We should rejoice in that. That we don't deserve it, but in his love and his mercy he saves us. He is gracious and he is good to us. So we first of all should be thankful. And we should cry out to him saying, Thank you, Father, for saving me. Thank you for your great mercy and your kindness that you bestowed upon me. I didn't deserve it. My desire was away from the Lord, not seeking him. But instead, he sought me out. He loved me that much. We should rejoice greatly in that. And not only did he <laughs> set his affection on us, but he set it to a living hope. Verse 3 there says that he calls us, see the active agent there, he calls us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. So a living hope. So you don't rejoice in a dead Jesus. You don't rejoice in a Jesus who remains in the tomb. We just celebrated Easter last month. 
The good news is we celebrate Easter on the basis that the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, that he is our hope, he is the reason that we can rejoice in our suffering because we know he went before us. He became man so that he could understand what man goes through. He lived through it, he lived perfectly through it, and he became our perfect sacrifice. He is a living hope. A living hope. And not that one day he will die, but he is living eternally. He will forever live. And in that, we can rejoice too, knowing that through him and in him, we will always live. And we have an eternal hope and an eternal joy in that, knowing that we do not serve a dead king, but one who sits on his throne. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to Paul's argument here to the Corinthians in verse 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 19. It says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see that? So I'm standing up here lying to you if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I'm misrepresenting what really happened. But the apostles are preaching here saying that no... If, if this is true, what you're claiming is true, and Jesus is still in the grave, and he never was raised from the dead, then we have no hope. We have nothing to rejoice in. And we're liars. He goes on to say, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So you take that, that argument that Paul is making back to the church. Obviously, there's people in Corinth at that time who were disputing the fact that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead. And Paul saying, what's the point then? Why are we here? Of course, the argument is, is that Jesus isn't dead. That's why we are speaking the way we are. That's why we are teaching the way we are, that Jesus is living. He is alive. Over 500 people saw him raised from the dead after his resurrection. Many people wrote about his resurrection after his death. So Christians, understand today, we do not have a blind faith. And oftentimes, we give people that idea we have a blind faith, but we have a historic faith. It is a faith that is based on the fact of a historic person who was named Jesus Christ, who was born over 2,000 years ago, who came, lived a perfect life, was punished on the cross for our sins, and then he was resurrected by the power of God. That's historical. That is not something that, that people can argue against because it has been seen and eyewitnessed accounts of. So we have something not to look at blindly and say, I rejoice blindly in this 
person or this thing that my parents taught me or how I was raised, but because I believe that this is true, that I am a sinful being, and the only way for the remission of my sins is for, is for a perfect sacrifice. So we, may we rejoice in the mercy of God and the fact that we serve a living hope. I have a question. Are you rejoicing in the mercy of God? Do you do that? Do you find yourself thinking about that daily? Like, thank you, Lord. I rejoice in what you've done on my behalf. That Jesus is not still on the ground. That in the ground that we we have a hope that has put away all our sins. Secondly, we rejoice in our eternal inheritance. Verses four and five. says to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power is being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time so we tend to think of salvation with kind of a broad stroke of the brush um, we, we misconstrue ideas about it uh, as if an eternal inheritance describes dealing primarily like something that we're going to obtain in a material sense when we get to heaven or in a personal relationship. I, I hear a lot of people say, when I die, the first thing I'm going to do is run up and, and hug my mom or my grandma or a loved one. Or I can't wait to get to heaven to obtain all the riches and, and, and all the uh, rewards that God has for me and the mansion that God has for me. But we missed the point. So we, we often speak about streets of girl, sorry, streets of gold, pearly gates, the crystal sea, the mansions I mentioned, the family members awaiting our arrival, and miss the main point to the passage. To be to be revealed in its fullness is what it says. So it is difficult for us to comprehend what eternity even looks like. The joys and the treasures that Jesus has for us. You can't even imagine it. It, it. When John tries to explain it in Revelation, he has to use language that we can comprehend, but I think it is incomprehensible. Our, our mind cannot be wrapped around the glory of who God is and what he is capable of and what he, you know, what awaits for us. But I do want you to understand this, that it is Christ who is our ultimate joy and inheritance. It is none, none of those other things. It's not a family member. It's not a material possession. But here's what you will do on the day when you are called to the Lord's in his presence. You will bypass your mom and dad. You will bypass anything else. And you will run and you will fall at the feet of Jesus. And you will worship him as king. All of those other things, all those other rewards, the benefits of family members who have went before us and who are cheering us on, as Hebrews says, those are all an overflow of what Christ gives us. Remember the parable of Matthew thirteen forty four. Tells us a story about a man. Jesus is telling the story about a man who comes upon a field, right? And in the field, he just happens upon this treasure. This treasure is so wonderful and unremarkable unremark- that he, 
he goes back and he takes everything else that he owns and he sells it all. All of his personal belongings, everything that he has that he counts as reward, he sells it all and gives it away because he wants that field. He wants to purchase that field. He wants his life to be based on that treasure that's in that field because he understands and Jesus has given that parable about himself and the kingdom of God that it is in that treasure in the person of Christ who we're willing to give all other things for and we should be willing to rejoice in that eternal inheritance knowing that one day that we won't float around just on clouds and play harps and all this wonderful stuff that we'll actually live as we were intended to live go back to the garden and look how they dwelled in the midst of the garden with the Lord. They still lived life. There was still expectation. So with Christ, I think eternity is going to be so much greater, so much more, so much more than we can ever anticipate. But it's in him and through him. So may we not only rejoice in, his, in the mercy of God, but maybe we also rejoice in our eter- eternal inheritance. Listen to Numbers 18 through 20 and I understand that this is written to Aaron by the way who was a priest but you know what Peter ends up calling us later on throughout this letter he says we are a holy priesthood so he says to Aaron said Lord and the Lord said to Aaron numbers 18:20 you shall have no inheritance in their land neither shall you have any portion among them it says I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel the Lord is our portion. Psalm 16, 5 says, The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. King David, as he sat in the midst of his kingdom, on his throne, with all of the wealth that you could possibly have, he does not look at any of that and think, this is important to me. This is what makes me who I am. He realizes that the Lord is his inheritance. That what is to come ultimately is what he is to inherit. Nothing on this earth, but the Lord ultimately is what he is going to rejoice in one day. Going back to the garden, the idea of dwelling with the Lord. Without that tension of sin and that issue there, we see the fact that God, Jesus, through Jesus, has reconciled us back to him. I like to pose questions, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Is Jesus your treasure, and do you rejoice in it? Think about that. Are you willing to, to sell all you have? Are you willing to give all you have? Are you willing to sacrifice all you have? Because you realize that in that field, that Jesus is your greatest treasure. Do you rejoice in that? If you are a believer, are you rejoicing in the fact that there is one day to come that you will serve the king of the universe. We sung a song earlier about how he put the stars and the galaxy and the universe together. That is the God we serve. Can we rejoice in that? Do you rejoice in it? Thirdly, do we rejoice in our suffering? Verses 6 through 9 say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Anybody in here been grieved by various trials lately? Any difficulties come up in life? 
struggles, pain, some of the things I mentioned before, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with him that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, suffering's inevitable, right? We all go through it in life. You all been through it. You're going to go through it. It's inevitable. Until the day the Lord returns, it will be that way. But the question is, why is it permissible? Why is it allowed? For the believer, it tells us here. Peter writes and he says that ultimately it is for the testing of our faith. It's to take out the impurities, to make us genuine in the faith. You see, it doesn't matter if it's a believer or unbeliever. We all go through suffering. But the believer has something to rejoice back in, as we mentioned earlier. It, it melts away all the impurities and sets apart what is genuine and what is not in your life. The question is, how do we respond to suffering when we deal with it? What is our response? We have to go back some degree to rejoicing in the mercy of God and rejoicing in our eternal inheritance. That's why Peter started the way he did, is to begin to remind them of those things. But let me ask you, is, is it a response of resignation or of joy? When we respond to suffering, is it, are we just kind of resigning ourselves to it and, and saying, you know what, poor pitiful me? Or is it one of joy? Now, this is a question that kind of got brought up in, in growth group. We asked this a couple weeks ago. What is joy? What is happiness? Happiness is fleeting. Joy is contentment in the circumstances. And despite the circumstances, that is what joy is. That's how we get through suffering because we have joy in Christ because we are content no matter the circumstances in this life understanding that Christ is to come. We have so much more to look forward to. Paul considered it gain. He's like, to leave this life would be wonderful but if the Lord decides to keep me here that's okay too. So joy is despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in, content in whatever suffering we may go through because of Christ. It's part of sanctification. He is purifying you. He is setting you apart. He is making you different from the way the world reacts to suffering to the way that we should react to it. It is different. If your response in suffering is the same way that a lost person in your life's response is, there's an issue there. Because your joy should be much greater than that or those who don't know the Lord. Romans 8, 16-18 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul understood that. Paul suffered much in his life. 
You can check that out through his journeys. But when you look at our Christian journey and and the, the life and the sufferings that we deal with, he says that the sufferings in this present time don't compare to the glory and the joy that we're going to have to come. And it's only for a short time. So we rejoice in our suffering because it makes us more like Him and it glorifies God. You get that? So God permits suffering in your life because it makes you more like Him, ultimately glorifying God. How does that work out? Is that difference between an unbeliever and a believer? As a believer, if you are suffering and you got joy in your life because you know who Christ is and you are content and resolved even in the situations of suffering, that brings glory to God as opposed to how an unbeliever deals with the circumstance. It glorifies God. So God permits suffering. He allows it because it ultimately makes other people say, what is different about that person? How is that person who professes Christ over there, how do they do that? How do they get through the tough times when a loved one's diagnosed with cancer or we have a a pastor who goes through a serious illness or... We lose someone close to us. Or there's a broken relationship through the voice. All these things, when we deal with them, the difference between us is because of who we rejoice in. And finally, we rejoice in the mystery of the gospel. So 10 through 12, the mystery of the gospel is perplexing, right? If you think about what what God did, he, He didn't... You know, as many of the Jewish people thought at the time, is Jesus is going to come riding in on a white horse, and he's going to come riding in like a king, and he's going to establish his throne. You know, God could have chose any other way, but the mystery of the gospel was the fact that Jesus came in the form of the human flesh as a baby, born to poor people in a manger nothing glamorous or glorious about it he he wasn't raised by the wealthiest people he didn't grow up under David's kingdom in that sense but he grew up and he lived a perfect life he became a carpenter and then he became a teacher a rabbi so It wasn't the way people assumed it would be. It was a mystery. And that's the reason that it was so perplexing to people when Jesus came on the scene claiming to be the Messiah because it it didn't fit their narrative. It, It wasn't the way that they anticipated it and wanted it to be. It didn't fit what they wanted, ultimately. So I pray that you rejoice in the mystery of the gospel, meaning that you rejoice in how God came about his plan. And it is so unique and it's so awesome that he thought of something in eternity past that we never could have contemplated. And it's all bound up in redemptive history. It's simple, yet it's complex. But in many places, it's written as a mystery. 
that now we, as New Testament believers, have a greater illumination and understanding of it. See, so we get the benefit of, on the back end of all this, understanding it from a historical perspective in light of what the Old Testament writers were writing. That is why he is stating here about the prophets going before us and how they wrote these things out, how they searched and sought diligently through prayer and meditation and through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was revealed to them over thousands of years of writings of what the Christ would be like. And there's different verses we could go through in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus, to the picture of who Jesus would be. But I love what it says. It says, why? It wasn't for themselves. The prophets didn't get to bear any eyewitness to this. It says it was to serve the reader. It was to serve the church. So as Peter's writing, he said, as they were, the prophets were doing this, they weren't serving themselves, they were serving you. So in the same regard, the mystery of the gospel, how God worked it out through redemptive history, he gave it through those prophets of old and the kings and the Psalms as they pointed us towards Jesus was so that we could rejoice in the mystery. So much that the angels can't even comprehend, it says. They long to look into these matters. So you think about that as, as an angel. They, they tend to try to understand this relationship that God has with these image bearers of his humans. And I'm sure in their mind at times it's like, why in the world does the Lord continue to put up with such sinful people? But he does. And that's the mystery of the gospel that God loves us so much. It's wrapped back up into that mercy of his. That he was so kind and gracious through his son to give us. And not only give us, but that we look forward to and we long to be with. So we rejoice in the mystery of the gospel. So that 2 Corinthians says this, 4, 15 through 18, Paul's writing here again. Listen to this. This is, this is pretty heavy. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, so the salvation is going out more and more, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You understand that's sanctification. So we're rejoicing in that. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the, this light, momentary affliction, it, it is fleeting, it is going away pain and the suffering that you go through in this lifetime it is minute in time and space but listen what the purpose of it is for it is not for God it said it is preparing us the church an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 
There's a weightiness to that in a sense of things unimaginable, uncomprehensible. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So meaning that you have hope forever, eternal, never-ending, outside of time and space. It's hard to comprehend that, right? Because we think in terms of 24-7 that, you know, Sunday through Saturday, we go through a routine and a schedule and we get through this life, but we don't understand that we should be rejoicing in the fact that God was merciful, rejoicing in the fact that God is eternal and that we get to enjoy him forevermore because he developed this plan in eternity past and he'll make sure it comes to fruition in eternity future. And we have much to rejoice in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, you are good and gracious and kind. We have much to be rejoiceful over, Lord, as you have told us here in your word to rejoice, even in the moments of despair and hurt and pain and suffering. Lord, even in the good times, Lord, we are to always be in view of you, God. It makes me think of how Paul writes to the Colossians and he tells them to set their sight and their mind on eternity and not on the things of this world. Lord, as we keep eternity in mind, we have much to be thankful for. May we wake up on a daily basis thanking you for what we have read here. That there is nothing... Lord, nothing that can get in the way of our eternity, our reward in Christ. Lord, may we celebrate that today. And may those who are dealing with difficulties right now work through, Lord, the depths of the valleys of darkness. And Lord, know that on the other side of that, God is you. And Lord, that you you have prepared a way for us through Christ. We thank you for that. We lift you up here now to remember that as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we sing, as we give, Lord, and we just worship you. May we rejoice. In your name I pray.